Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Ray Stevens. Ray is the CEO of Shoti. It's a company that uses advanced structural biology technologies like cryo-EM images and computational techniques to discover new small molecule drugs. The idea is to come up with orally available medicines that can build off the biological insights gained from protein or peptide drugs, but replace them with a less expensive and more convenient oral small molecule. Shoti has operations in San Francisco and Shanghai, making it a truly hybrid Chinese and American company. The company raised a $100 million Series B financing in October and has raised $158 million since inception. Ray comes to this position with a long and distinguished track record in structural biology. Before going to work full-time on this biotech startup, Ray had a long career in academia as a professor at USC, Scripps Research, and UC Berkeley. Ray also had entrepreneurial ventures in those years, as he and his students founded a number of companies. He played a role in Cyrix, which was acquired by Takeda, and then later co-founded Receptos, a San Diego-based company acquired by Celgene for $7.2 billion. The main asset there was Ozanamod. It's an oral small molecule agonist aimed at a G-protein coupled receptor target. It's now marketed by Bristol-Myers Squibb as Zaposia for the treatment of multiple sclerosis and ulcerative colitis. In this conversation, we talk about Ray's journey through academia and into industry, the technologies that are enabling such important advances in small molecule drug discovery, and a bit on what it's like to run a company that tries to bridge the gap between the US and China. On a side note, Ray, in his spare time, is an endurance athlete and serious high-altitude mountaineer. That's another thing he and I have in common. He made a summit attempt on Mount Everest in 2021 and is eyeing the world's highest mountain again. Listeners may or may not recall that I summited Mount Everest in 2018. So naturally, I've had a few conversations with Ray about the mountains and had to seek him out for the long run. Now, before we get started, do you enjoy listening to the Long Run Podcast? then you'll love getting full access to my coverage of the top people and trends, my popular front points column on Fridays, plus the expert views of biotech leaders who I curate and edit at TimmermanReport.com. Subscribe for a month, a quarter, or a year at a time. Discounts are available for groups with multiple readers. And once people subscribe, they renew year after year at remarkably high rates. Find out why. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click subscribe. Now, please join me and Ray Stevens on the long run. Ray Stevens, welcome to the long run. Thank you, Luke. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. It's an honor to be on your show. Very glad to have you on the show. And for the listeners who uh, don't know, I want to share a little uh, known fact about you. Um, I really kind of wish that this recording were done in a tent on some desolate mountain somewhere <laughs> with the wind flapping. Maybe we'll have to do that sometime. And and I'll, uh, the reason I say that, for those who don't know, is that Ray is a serious mountain climber, uh, made an attempt on Mount Everest in uh, 2021. Um, and uh, so I, I'm very much rooting for you as a, uh, a fellow biotech traveler, you could say, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, who loves the mountains. 
Well, Luke, you, you'll, you'll appreciate this. Last year, uh, when I was at Everest Base Camp, I was in the middle of, also, we were dosing our first patient, and we we're also closing our Series B. And I was trying to do that from a satellite phone from Everest Base Camp. And I got to say, uh, it, was, uh, it was quite challenging. So we were successful, but it was, it was challenging. I can imagine calling in the middle of the night, not feeling so well, difficulty breathing. <laughs> yep, exactly. You, you know it. You, you've been there before, Luke. Yes, yes. Well, um, so I, I'd like to uh, weave these threads together, uh, as you know, as a listener of this show, the, the personal and the professional. So uh, can we start from the beginning? So you're, you're a boy from Maine. Absolutely. Uh, what part? So I, I grew up in Auburn, Maine, went to college, uh, got my bachelor's degree at University of Southern Maine. Uh, and my hope is someday I really want to return to Maine, uh, kind of in the you know, later chapters of my life. I, I want to get back to the state of Maine uh, at some stage coming up. What was, uh, what was it like growing up there? You know, very, I would say, normal. Um, I played outside as a kid. Uh, not surprisingly, I was a Boy Scout, you know, so I did a lot of things outdoors. Uh, really, really enjoyed, you know, growing up. Didn't, you know, when you're a kid, you don't really know much about anything else that's going on. We, the state of Maine, this is another, you know, a small fact, you know, state of Maine had a really big paper industry and shoe industry. And uh, about 20 years ago, both of those industries left the state. So, you know, Maine as a, Maine's economy has struggled uh, quite, uh, quite harshly. And I kind of, you know, look at, you know, Maine, particularly Portland, Maine, and places like Seattle and Portland, Oregon, where they've really, those cities have really come up. I think, you know, Maine has a lot of potential, but largely the only industry left is really tourism. So they have a great natural environment. Were you exposed to that as a kid? Boy Scouts, you mentioned? Absolutely. One of my fondest memories was in the Boy Scouts, you do something called Order the Arrow, where they drop you in the middle of the woods and you... You know, you spend the night by yourself trying to find your way back. And in the, the woods of Maine, that can be uh, quite intimidating, uh, but I, I just loved it. And so I really got my love for mountains, uh, love for outdoors. And I, you know, I have three kids. And one of the best gifts that I've given them is the same love for the outdoors. It's something that you can do. It's free. You can go outside. You can climb mountains. And all three of my kids, at the time, they complained about it. But now they're all, all three are grown up. They, they have the same love and passion for the mountains and outdoors. Now, when you were growing up, what, what did your parents do for a living? Uh, so my dad was in the Air Force. Um, we moved, up, moved all around the, the U.S. Uh, they were both from Maine, state of Maine. Uh, my dad passed away when I was six years old. And so my mother uh, started raising us. Uh, she had a, a hard time raising three kids by herself, uh, so we moved back to Maine. So each of us uh, sort of went separate ways when we were young, and then my mother was able to uh, then work and get us all back together again. So, you know, growing up, so my, and my mother was in the Army, and so that was part of it. So fa father in the Air Force, mother in the Army. I joined the Army the day that I turned 17, I joined the army. Wait, 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 separate ways. Your siblings went to go live with somebody else? Yeah, so my, my brother went to an orphanage. Uh, my sister went to neighbors, and I went to an aunt's uh, to help take care of her. Oh, wow. Okay, and how old were, were you when this happened? 
this would have been, my father passed away when I was six. This would have been when I was about, uh, probably about nine or 10 years old. Wow. So that's, I mean, pretty traumatic. Um, you know, when you're, when you're a young kid, you, you just kind of do, you know, what it, what it takes to keep plugging along. So, so, um, you went to University of Southern Maine. Um, what kind of schools did you go to prior to that? And, and how did you get interested in science? Yeah. So, you know, one of the questions that you always ask, uh, people on this podcast is, you know, what, what type of student were you? And, and I've thought about that. Um, I, I was not your typical student. Uh, I was not a good student. The, I, I did very well in math and science. I love math and science. In fact, my freshman year, I was able to, we have a college in our hometown called Bates College. And I was able to go at a very young age uh, for those that are skilled in math. I was able to take college classes, you know, as a freshman. But, you know, other subject areas, uh, particularly like English, I almost didn't pass 10th grade because I, I was very late to turning in my required term paper uh, at that age. So, but I got through it and I graduated on time. So very, very proud of the fact that I did graduate. <laughs> you learn later that writing is actually an important skill. <laughs> Communication and writing, you know, absolutely. You can do the most amazing things in the world, but if you can't communicate them, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, you have to be able to share these things, these breakthroughs that you have. So what was it about University of Southern Maine? Was this just like the, the local state school, like you could afford or something about it? Yeah. So what, what happened was, um, as I mentioned, I, I joined the army when I was 17, literally went to Fort Detrick, uh, in, oh no, um, Fort Dix in New Jersey. I did my basic training. And then I did my, what's called AIT, your schooling. Uh, I did at Fort Sam Houston in Texas. I was supposed to go to Syracuse University. And as I was just getting out of, of the schooling stage, AIT, uh, realized I couldn't afford to go to Syracuse. I uh, just didn't have the, the money actually for the housing uh, was the, the hard part. And so University of Southern Maine was the pretty much sort of the local college. Uh, it's now, I think it's really evolving. But probably the biggest... Um, thing about going to University of Southern Maine, the, the thing that really impacted me was freshman year. So I, I, you know, went to college. I was computer science. I loved computer science at that stage. I was taking Pascal, machine language, Fortran, all these old languages. But I took a chemistry class um, somewhat as an elective, and it just had the best professor. It was this guy with a big pocket protector, calculator, TI-55 in his pocket, he would get up there and lecture on chemistry, and he just, he just had so much passion. He loved it. And that was a stage where I, was, where I was deciding, do I really want to sit behind a desk and program all the time or be in the lab, make things? And so I was, I was very inspired uh, by this one professor, Ted Sautery, freshman year. The second thing, though, that happened was um, my advisor was this person, John Ritchie, a professor at the university, brand new, just had just started there. Uh, as the chairman of the department. And he really kind of took me under his wing. Uh, he saw me as a student that I was good in chemistry, I was good in math, computer science, but the other subjects I was struggling. And he kind of took a chance on me in terms of mentoring me. And when you go to a school like this, when you get to the later stages of chemistry, PCHEM, analytical chem, you know, your class size is typically 
three to four students. So if you miss a class, they really notice you're not there. And um, he was just a, a tremendous mentor to me. Changed, I, you know, I can say that he changed my life. Kind of, he was a father figure in a lot of ways to me. Uh, and so that's why I, I decided to switch my major to chemistry. And the, as they say, the rest is history. And how did you go? You, you went to graduate school at USC. How did you end up there? Uh, so, the, so when I was at University of Southern Maine, uh, John Ritchie, uh, who's the professor at USM, every summer he would take a student to Brookhaven National Laboratory on Long Island. And I got to learn structural, uh, then it was really um, chemistry, structural characterization of molecules, small molecules. And while I was there, I met another student from USC that was also doing the research. So it was really cool. I got to work in a nuclear reactor as a, you know, a sophomore in college. Uh, I loved it. It was so cool. And, and that's where I met this other student from USC. They, this professor at USC was doing similar work, structural characterization, particularly of transition metal hydrides. This was for hydrogen storage, uh, for things like uh, um, tanks that go into space. And so that experience, that connected me to USC. And then that professor then knew that I, you know, I had, I had some skill in structural characterization, uh, crystallography. And so he recruited me to come to USC. At what point did um, you start thinking along the lines of using this skill for pharmaceuticals? So I graduated from USC in 1988. And at that time, it was really hard to get a job in chemistry. Uh, it was a, it was, uh, the economy was struggling. And at the time, I had a girlfriend that was studying neurobiology. And so every night I would go to pick her up. And I always stayed away from biology. All the pre-med students kind of scared me away with their intensity. And I was just there to, to learn. But I really enjoyed reading. You know, I'd go to pick her up. She'd be finishing up experiments. I'd read her books just for fun on biology, neurobiology. And so given that there was, there was a real, not a lot of jobs in 1988 in chemistry, I decided to do my postdoc with Bill Lipscomb at Harvard University. And that was kind of combining my structural characterization of molecules, crystallography, with the biology that I was learning uh, when I would go to pick up uh, my girlfriend at night. And so I went to his lab. And in particular, the reason why I really wanted to go to his lab is he was still working on, uh, on boron hydrides, something that I was familiar with, but I wanted to learn structural biology so I could kind of get the best of both worlds. If I didn't like the structural biology, I could easily default back into something that I was very comfortable with. But what happened was when I got to his lab at Harvard, I just loved the structural biology. It was so cool to be looking at these protein molecules and you know, seeing ligands bound and everything. And I'm a very graphics-oriented person. I like figures. I like being able to see objects. So crystallography, electron microscopy really resonates well with me. Uh, but I just, when I got to Lipscomb's lab, just absolutely loved it. So there was something basic there. Like the, the basics of, what was it like uh, the lock in the key, you know, analogy people use where it's just like, aha, I can see it now. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as a chemist, I, you know, this is, I hope this doesn't come out the wrong way, but as a chemist, I looked at these biological molecules and I thought, 
as a chemist, I appreciate the bonds and the attractions and everything. I can really make a contribution here by bringing more chemistry to structural biology. And so I thought that it was a, a good fit. Then I started thinking about, you know, where did I want to start my own career, uh, my own independent career after my postdoc? And I, I thought, you know, that one of the biggest breakthroughs in the next couple of decades is going to be in, I, I believe, neurobiology, you know, brain. How do we store information in our brain? How do we think? And so I decided I would combine structural biology with neurobiology as an independent professor. Okay, so that's the thought process during your postdoc period. And somebody out at Berkeley must have thought that that made some sense. So you, you go to this, this great chemistry department at yeah, Berkeley. Wow. Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of funny how sort of life, um, how life goes. So what had happened was I actually had an offer at uh, Gif Servette just outside of Paris for a faculty position. And I just thought it would be so cool to live just outside of Paris and start up a laboratory. So that's where I was going to go. And my advisor said, you know, before you make that commitment, and again, this is back, you know, late 1980s, early um, 1990s, uh, Lipscomb told me, you know, before you, before you leave the U.S. and go to Europe, you might want to apply to a couple of places in the U.S. So I applied to three universities, uh, just three. I applied to UC Boulder, uh, I applied to Stanford, and I applied to Berkeley. And if you wonder what all three of those have in common, they're pretty close to mountains. Berkeley and Stanford, you got Tahoe and skiing, UC Boulder, of course, uh, great climbing and skiing. That was, I, I probably should be ashamed to admit this, but that was kind of the, I wanted to be next to some mountains. And so I only applied to those three places. I know this contradicts the, the Paris piece, um, but I, when I got to Berkeley, you're completely right. Dan Koshlin and Pete Schultz, who were in charge of the search that year, they really wanted a structural biologist that was interested in neuroscience because they, they saw the combination of those two things. And so it was really, you know, a lucky occurrence that I just happened to be what they were looking for. So you go to Berkeley, and this is your first faculty job, uh, are you tenure track, like publishing papers, kind of the usual thing, uh, f figuring out your research agenda. Um, how, how did you end up going down to San Diego? Because this is where like, you spent some prime years now um, getting established at Scripps. Yeah, so, so at Berkeley, I, I had three primary sort of projects. Uh, one was on all focused on neurotransmitters. So I, I really like adrenaline. Not, not too surprising given the mountains and everything. So I really wanted to understand a structural basis of neurotransmission, particularly adrenaline. So I studied the enzymes involved in adrenaline biosynthesis. I studied the, the toxins that actually mess up neurotransmission and the G-protein coupled receptors that pick up neurotransmission. And the other reason why I chose these three projects, one, they were all focused on brain chemistry, neuroscience. Second, it's kind of a portfolio. The enzymes were kind of a low-risk project. The toxins were a medium risk. And the GPCRs were kind of the holy grail for the field. Their membrane proteins, really difficult. At that time, everybody was telling me, you know, really, really difficult, uh, low chance of success. Could never get a grant in this area. But, but it's, it, was a, it's, it was a holy grail. So what, what was so difficult, for those unfamiliar with GPCRs, what was so difficult about them? So if you think, you know, again, this is back in the, you know, 
1990-91 time period, these are membrane proteins. There'd only been one structure, I think, at that time of a membrane protein, uh, and that was photosynthetic reaction center, uh, one of the first membrane proteins solved. The difficulty is, since they sit in the membrane, they really love their hydrophobic, their greasy environment, and they don't like to be exposed to anything else. And so, and they also express at extremely low levels. In addition, I was really interested in mammalian proteins. I, I wanted to study the, you know, the membrane proteins in the human brain or animal brains, not in bacteria. Bacteria don't have these um, G protein coupled receptors. And so expressing them were very difficult. Um, stabilizing was incredibly difficult. And then eventually getting to crystals, uh, extremely challenging. A single project would take, you know, anywhere from three to five years. So that's why they were, at the time, it was extremely challenging. But you mentioned they were a holy grail. Like people knew they were important. Um, why was that? Was it because of like, was, were, did people already know that they were, they ended up being targets of a, a lot of drugs? Yeah, so if you think about G-protein-coupled receptors, you, you see because of rhodopsin, that's a G-protein-coupled receptor. You smell because of olfactory receptors, a G-protein-coupled receptor. Your heart is beating because of adrenaline, because of a G-protein-coupled receptors. And so we knew, you know, after the sort of whole sequencing phase, we knew that these were really important drug, really important drug targets, really important for human physiology. And, and so their importance was absolutely known. Characterizing them, really understanding the structure and function, that was extremely challenging. People at that time, they called them G-protein-coupled receptors. They knew that they coupled inside the cell. But that was about all that they really knew. Okay. So um, did you have any success early on to, or, or were you beating your head against the wall for a long time? We had zero success. This is a project that I worked on for 19, 20 years and we failed miserably year after year. And, and what, you know, what I would do like any you know, um, assistant professor starting up, and that's why it was really important to have this balanced portfolio of, of pro projects in my lab the neuroenzymes, that worked out really, really well. And in fact, led to the development of two drugs uh, that, we, that my lab got to develop, Kuvan and Palenzeek, that are both now in the market. We also worked on botulinum neurotoxin, which messes up neurotransmission. And, and we helped, we worked with the company Allegan on Botox. The, so, you know, we, we did the projects that paid the bills. We would use some of those funds that we got to, you know, the skunk work project to continue the GPCR project. But I got rejected, you know, grant after grant. Um, no agency was going to fund, uh, you know, something that people didn't think was possible. And so it wasn't until um, uh, Elias Suhuni, who was director of the NIH, when he took over as director, he knew that there were a lot of these really pie-in-the-sky areas that we needed breakthroughs, but it was going to take a interdisciplinary approach to overcome them, he created a, a pr program at NIH called the Roadmap Initiative. And that Roadmap Initiative singled out membrane protein structural biology as an area that we needed breakthroughs. And, and so, you know, we didn't get it funded specifically for GPCRs, but we had been developing a lot of new technologies, nanovolume crystallization, small microfluidics. And so, 
that roadmap initiative really gave us a big breakthrough to develop the technologies that we could then relay into G protein coupled receptors. Now, was this all happening at Berkeley or did some of this stuff happen later when you were in San Diego? Yeah, so we moved to San Diego. Uh, this would have been 1999, I believe. And, and the reason was I had a really close collaboration with Pete Schultz in the chemistry department at Berkeley. We, you know, he had asked me whether I'd be interested in crystallizing some of his catalytic antibodies. And I told Pete, you know, I don't know a lot about antibodies, immune system, but I thought it was really interesting. So happy to help him out. You know, to me, one of the common themes in my whole career is I like helping people, plain and simple. And so I told Pete I'd help him. What happened, in, you know, in, within about sort of four to five years, I think we generated nine science and nature papers. We had the cover of science one year. We really got to understand how antibodies mature. So the maturation process of antibodies going from germline to mature antibodies. And so the reason why I'm telling you, you know, this story is that collaboration with Pete was incredibly productive. Wasn't specifically in my neuroscience track, but just helping him out. And so Pete was being recruited to Scripps back then. And Pete asked me, he said, you know, Ray, you've done amazing things, you know, with the collaboration. He also liked the technology development that we were doing to ultimately get GPCRs. He believed GPCRs were important. So Pete suggested that I might want to move to Scripps at the same time he was moving. And I went down to Scripps, met with Richard Lerner, and the negotiation took about maybe 90 seconds, and that was it. Uh, you know, Richard asked me what I wanted. I said, this is what I want to do. And Richard really wanted people that were that really wanted to do ambitious projects that, that could really move the dial. And the GPCR project was, was exactly that type of project. So that's why I was recruited so to Scripps. Th there's the uh, collaborative piece that you're referencing that, you know, a lot of scientists um, will appreciate. But there's also, like, the community that you're in. Like the other, you know, so who, what uh, kinds of skills were you surrounded by there, whether it be at Scripps or just in broader San Diego, that you were able to like be stimulated by? Yeah. So, you know, again, it's, um, it's, it's interesting how life sort of goes. So when we moved to San Diego to Scripps, Pete was starting this institute for the Novartis Foundation. And what Pete wanted to do, his, his crazy idea was his roommate at Caltech was from the car industry. Uh, I think he worked at Saturn at the time, Saturn Cars. And Pete wanted to use automation from the automobile industry and apply it to drug discovery, biology discovery. And one of those areas was structural biology. So I got to work with these engineers from the automobile industry. And they said, all right, show me what you have to do to express a protein, to purify it, to crystallize it. And they automated the whole thing. And at this time, I remember when I was going to Berkeley, I was trying to negotiate for a crystallization robot. And the chairman of the department said, you don't need a crystallization robot. You have graduate students. They can do all the work. <laughs> and, and back then, we didn't have the technology. So, you know, that was, you know, probably the most efficient approach. But working with these engineers from the automobile industry, they really got it. We had this big breakthrough in microfluidics that was happening in the whole field. And so they, they automated everything. And so now there are crystallization robots, purification robots, 
expression robots, we use these routinely today. All, all structural biologists do. This is a very similar story to, you know, what I talked about with Lee Hood in the, the, the book about the automated DNA sequencer. Same exact story about the graduate students and the manual. Yep, you're absolutely right. That's in fact, if you think about the timing, this is right after, you know, Lee Hood and DNA sequencing. The next, the next area was, of course, what are you going to do about the proteins? And so, you know, I work in a protein world. So you're, that's where we got our inspiration from. So you're developing these technologies with some help from engineers. Was industry involved or at what point did you start working with people who, you know, were in industry? So about the same time that we were putting this together, we had actually at Berkeley, we had developed what we call nanovolume crystallization. And again, this is a great example of, um, so in, in structural biology, we typically work at the microliter scale. That's, that's what students can pipette reliably. That's why that was chosen, that scale. And when you go down to microfluidics, all of a sudden, you can go down to nanoliter volumes. And with membrane proteins, when it's so scarce, we really had to scale down tremendously. So we started working with, you know, the engineers, and we realized, you know, there's probably a biotech company in this. So the first company that we started uh, was a company called Cerex. In fact, we started this with somebody else who you've had on your podcast before, Ned David. So Ned David was one of my was actually my first PhD student at Berkeley. And Ned, you know, really he loved the technology. I give Ned all the credit for really driving the company at the very early stages. And by the way, every company I've started has been with a former student. It's something that I really enjoy about the process. But we so when we had developed this technology and then we had the engineers build the equipment, we realized, you know, we can we can get through structural biology, structure-based drug discovery way faster than anybody's ever been able to do before. So we started that first company called Cyrix. And that was pretty successful, ended up being acquired by Takeda. Um, now, and you're, uh, you're able to figure this out like within your other responsibilities of being a faculty, you know, doing research, I don't know, if, uh, mentoring, um, publishing, seeking out grants. Uh, but but what did you learn about the experience with industry and and what it could do to advance your your research agenda? Yeah, you know what what I love about starting biotech companies is it's a real team sport activity. You have to have people from all the areas: finance, HR, chemistry, biology, all these different pieces. Everybody's working together for one single reason: they want to make a medicine. Now, some might be doing it because they want to make value in the company. Some are doing it because they're passionate about the patients. But everybody's pulling in the same exact direction. And that was one of the things I really, you know, in academia, particularly at Berkeley, we used to sort of joke, if we could get a couple of professors together to work together, wow, you could do something significant. And I think times have changed. People do collaborate way more now than they did 25 years ago. And that's, I think, a good evolution of academia but academia is still largely, you're rewarded for independence. You know, whether you're a graduate student in that first author paper, or you're an assistant professor, and you're trying to balance, you know, the teaching load uh, with the publication, with the grants and everything. So what I, what I learned in the first company, I, I loved how, how much it was a team activity and everybody, all these smart people pulling together for the same cause. Do you enjoy listening to the Long Run Podcast? 
then you'll love getting full access to my coverage of the top people and trends, my popular front points column on Fridays, plus the expert views of biotech leaders who I curate and edit at TimmermanReport.com. Subscribe for a month, a quarter, or a year at a time. Discounts are available for groups with multiple readers. And once people subscribe, they tend to renew year after year at remarkably high rates. Find out why. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click subscribe. So let's fast forward a little bit. You went, uh, you started another company, which became Receptos. Uh, What was the big idea for that one? Yeah, so, you know, GPCRs was my holy grail. In 2007, we finally had a breakthrough. This is a collaboration with Brian Kibuko's lab at Stanford. Brian really knows, you know, beta-2 adrenergic receptor. And we had all these technologies that we wanted to apply to that. So we teamed up, collaborated, got the structure, um, published that in science. That became the foundation of of Receptos um, from the technology perspective that we had developed uh, at, at Scripps. And, and so we wanted to apply it, GPCRs and structure-based drug discovery. And, you know, the, you know, that journey, again, was sort of fascinating. We developed a S1P1 receptor agonist, uh, Hugh Rosen and Ed Roberts uh, were the two, that developed that a chemistry biology team. That became the foundation of the company, and the company did very well. Uh, we, that molecule is now on the market. It's called Zaposia. And it's treating patients with both MS and IBD. And it's really, um, uh, it's, it's, a great, it's a great molecule. I think Ozanamod is the um, uh, gener- generic name, but it's a small molecule that, that binds with a GPCR um, target, um, has that agonist effect, as you mentioned, treatment for multiple sclerosis and now ulcerative colitis. Uh, company... I don't know, it was acquired by Celgene, now part of BMS, for, I mean, multiple billions, like eight or nine. We, we, yeah, we, we went public, I think, in 2013, and then we wound up getting acquired by Celgene for, I think it was a little over seven billion U.S. dollars. Yes. Well, one or two billion, you know, what's the difference? <laughs> how, how, um, how big of a life changer was this for you as a co-founder? Was this like, I, I could retire or I can do whatever I want now? How did it change things? I had actually developed some other molecules along my path. And so I've, I've been very fortunate and I've worked with just amazing people. Uh, so, you know, I really didn't look at it. I didn't look at it from a financial perspective. Uh, I looked at it really from a, for me, you asked earlier, I, you know, eye-opening experience. It was an eye-opening experience where we realized, you know, wow, we have, you know, this, this technology platform works really well. We can, you know, really make a difference making these medicines. And, you know, I'd, I'd also, I had mentioned earlier, I developed two drugs, Palanzik and Kuvan with Biomarin. You know, when you, when you get to interact with patients, it is the most incredible experience. When they come up and they thank you for developing a drug, you, you know, you're, you're just, you know, it's the best feeling in the world that you've changed somebody's life and you've helped somebody. And so that's really the sort of thing that, that drove me. And so at the time that we sold... Receptos. Uh, I happened to be living in Shanghai on a sabbatical, and I started asking myself, you know, what what do I want to do next? You know, again, my students joined, started joining my lab because they wanted to start biotech companies, and so I started thinking, you know, where can we use this technology platform to really have the the biggest impact uh, in the world? 
And so I came up, you know, as we, my family and I were traveling a lot that, that year sabbatical time. So we came up, you know, came up with the idea of, you know, there's been a big breakthrough in healthcare with biologics. What if we use structure-based drug discovery to convert these biologics, which we can visualize and see the interaction, and we can convert them to small molecules? And that was part of the thesis for Receptos as well. Um, there were great biologics out there, and we came up with a small molecule. So traveling the world, saw a big unmet need. These biologics are available to about you know, a third of the world to 40% of the world, but they're not, a lot of people don't get access to many of these great biologic breakthroughs. So I thought that's a place where we could really make a difference. So that's when we started, you know, the next company, Shoti, to focus on converting biologics to small molecules. You know, this fits into a thesis you might have read from Alex Harding on Timmerman Report a couple months ago that when, um, uh, if you can get comparable efficacy from a small molecule, let's call it a simpler modality than a biologic, the small molecule has certain advantages like the, the lower cost of goods, the easier manufacturing at scale. Uh, you know, they eventually go generic. Uh, more people can get access. Uh, you're thinking along these lines too. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the biggest is patient compliance. You know, we, we talk to a lot of physicians and they say, look, what my patients really want, you know, if, you know, for example, you know, their diabetes patients, what they really want is they want to get in the car, drink their coffee, pop their pill. You know, that's what they really want. And, and they'll take their medicine, you know, if they get that. Going into the hospital IVs, and again, biologics have revolutionized healthcare. They validate the target. There's a great opportunity. Small molecules, I think, ultimately, you know, do have a lot of advantages that you just mentioned. And I would add patient compliance better pharmaceutics, tissue penetration. The biggest hurdle, the biggest reason people started moving away from small molecules over to biologics, biologics are largely safe. You go into a phase one trial, you're using a you know, mutated version of an antibody. Small molecules, there's more of a safety challenge, but another big breakthrough for the field has been we have so much better tools now today to screen out cardiovascular side effects or other side effects. Well, the biologics have been very specific to the target and traditional small molecules eh, maybe more off target. But this is, brings us back to the technologies that you were, you're mentioning. Could you, could you walk us through some of these technologies that really started emerging, let's say, five or so years ago? Because there's, there's multiple things here and, and they need to be configured together, Right. How, how do you think about this to, to really create a, a drug discovery platform that's, that's smooth and efficient and more predictable? Yeah, so one, one of the biggest breakthroughs that I think has revolutionized biology only five or six years ago is CryoEM. And, and you, did, you actually did a story um, on the Vancouver company, Gendiva. Uh, so CryoEM has been a game changer. It used to take us years to get the crystallographic data um, and a lot of hard work and risk. CryoEM, you know, these, in, these microscopes that are available now, th they're wonderful. You can get the data much faster. And, and it's also, there's more data, more actual data involved. And what I mean by that is, so the microscopes, electron microscopes were really developed for physical, you know, really physics or material science. What FEI did was they they adapted the electron microscope for life science, for biological samples, which are much softer in a sense. So they had better microscopes optimized for biology. 
The other big breakthrough about the same time was machine learning. So with electron microscopy, you get all these images and literally people would go in with their eye and sort of try to see these different objects. Now with machine learning, facial recognition, you can collect 3 million images and you can average them together. Or you can actually find subsets so you can find different dynamic states of a receptor, say. And so we get, we get static information. We see how the drug molecule, as we do our structure-based drug discovery process, but we also get dynamic data that also helps us understand the conformational states. It's just so much more informative in the drug discovery process, but most important, it's faster and much more reliable. This is the, the, uh, the analogy people use is between a still photo and a movie. I mean, you can take a whole lot of still photos with cryo-EM and piece together what amounts to a movie. Yep, absolutely. And you can see when that protein, how it folds in different states, conformational states, as you say, and maybe the small molecule that you envision binds in one state, but not the other. So you, you, can, you can be uh, uh, more um, intentional, more, more rational about the ones you take forward in development. Yeah, that, that's absolutely spot on, correct. So, um, so you know, you kind of get a taste of this. It sounds like you're, you're working out um, this technology at Receptos. You see it work like with one big home run there with, with Hosanamon. Uh, but you're thinking, hey, this is kind of like a warm-up act. Like we, we now have the tools to do this kind of thing over and over. Is that what you were thinking? We weren't thinking about it that way. Um, it was, so when a company gets acquired, and, and I've been fortunate, the companies I've started have gotten acquired. And that's, it, it's, it's wonderful because these molecules, even Cerex, the first company, you know, they generated Messina, which again is type 2 diabetes drug. But what also happens, you know, particularly in the case of Receptos, Celgene didn't want anything else. They wanted one thing, the S1P1 drug, and they didn't want anything else. And that was also sad, you know, where, uh, you know, the, the team was disbanded. Uh, everything um, really sort of went in different directions. And so Mike Hansen, who was one of my former students, he and I were the ones that really got Receptos going from the structural biology part. Uh, we decided, you know, if Receptos, cell genes not going to do anything with this, this has so much potential. Uh, let's try to, you know, continue evolving it, make it better. And so that, beca that became the foundation for Shoti. It wasn't, we weren't thinking about it at Receptos. We were actually, we were hoping Celgene would keep the, keep the you know, project going, uh, but they, they didn't. So we, we saw an opportunity and, and decided, you know, there's, there's a really big impact that we can have by really seeing this platform make a potential, make, a, make more of an impact. You made a quick reference earlier to going on sabbatical in Shanghai in China. Like, how did, how did that happen? And what, um, what potential did you see in China? Because these, these threads need to come together. Yeah, so, you know, so I'll, I'll go on one sort of really quick tangent. We're supposed to go to, to Kyoto, Kyoto University. That's where we love Japan. We love everything about the food, the, the culture. And we're all ready to go. This is 2000. Uh, this is 2011 timeframe. The, but if you remember what happened in spring of that year, the tsunami hit. And we didn't know what was going to happen with radiation, power, and everything. At the same time, um, so we couldn't go. 
And that was kind of sad. We had already set up, you know, we're going to go somewhere for a year. And this is just before my kids became, uh, just before they were going to be entering high school. So it was like our last opportunity to go off on an adventure together. And so two of my, two of my students in the lab at the time, uh, they were becoming professors at Shanghai Institute of Materia Medica, uh, Chinese Academy of Science Institute in Shanghai. And so they said, well, Ray, why don't you come to Shanghai with us? You can help us set up our lab. So I thought, my wife and I looked at each other and was sort of like, move to Shanghai for a year. Um, that'll be different. And, and it was, you know, uh, the culture shock uh, and everything. But the idea was, you know, we'll put the kids in an international school. They'll have a great experience living outside of the U.S. for a year. And then we'll come back. Um, I can help my former students start up their lab. And I was actually curious about how drug discovery, healthcare was going to evolve in China, where you got 1.4 billion people. So I figured it would be a good learning experience for me as well. So that was really kind of the, that's what led us there. But now you kind of stuck. <laughs> what happened? Well, so the, like I said, the first three months, uh, the stories that I could sort of tell about, you know, we didn't speak the language at all. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a tough couple of months. But then we started making a lot of friends. Shanghai has a very big expat population, people from all over, uh, you know, from, you know, United States, from, you know, Britain, Australia, South Korea, just all over the world. And we started making friends. And we started realizing all these people, all these expats have something in common. They're all adventurers. They're all there because it's an adventure. Nobody really knows what's going to sort of happen. And so we really appreciated that. Uh, at the same time, you know, I started trying to understand. I just wanted to learn. I, I went there, you know, really to learn. And I started seeing the biotech community in Shanghai, in particular, the, the CRO, Contract Research Organization, infrastructure that's built. We've used these CROs dating back to Cirex, my first company. Um, but it's very different if you're there working together with the CROs like Wuxi uh, or others. And so... I realized, you know, with this company that we wanted to get started, I thought, first of all, we want this company to truly be global. We don't want it to be just a U.S. company. We don't want it to be a China company. We want it to be global. And the biggest shortage that we have these days is talent. So, you know, where can we find, you know, the, some really good talent? And where can be a really good springboard for starting a company that can help address the global needs? So, again, if you're converting biologics to small molecules – and they have to be best in class. Um, that's the, the investors will require that because they do need to be able to sell in developed countries. But if you want to develop these for the rest of the world, you know, say Nepal. You know, I went into the pharmacy when I was there last year, um, uh, climbing Everest. We, you know, if you want to make it to the rest of the world, you really want to have a global position. And so we, so that's why we decided that we'd make this company be have you know a foot in both places. All of our financing clinical is in the United States, in South San Francisco. Our discovery, you know, is in Shanghai, right next to all these great CROs. So that's, that's what kind of got me, you know, excited about this model and making a real impact globally. Well, okay, we'll get there in a second. But you, uh, you, you got your first taste here when you were on that sabbatical. You know, you're still in academia, I guess, at Scripps at the time. You, you later moved up to USC. Uh, but now, now you're talking about Shouty, uh, independent company, and, and you're the CEO. 
Uh, so, so you're all in. You're no longer a um, tenured professor at USC or Scripps or anywhere. I mean, uh, why did you decide to do that? Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's a question. Every company that I've started, I've been asked to be the CEO. And I always say, no, we need to hire somebody better than me. And it's not that I think I'm the, the best for a show tee, but I think I'm positioned properly now. And this happened for a couple different reasons. Um, one, uh, the passion for the platform and really making medicines accessible to all. Second, I started getting more of an education on the finance piece. I went on the board of a company called Danaher, and Danaher is a very big conglomerate. As part of that, I volunteered to do a deep immersion in finance, into P&L, M&A, all those different financial audit committee I volunteer on. And I really learned the financial part that goes along with the science. So I felt like I was finally prepared. I was ready to be able to do this. And the second is, I love being a professor. It is the most rewarding job in the world. But, you know, there's another chapter, and I really wanted to, to do this. And so, um, so I decided to just leap in um, with both feet. I'm now technically a merit. Uh, professor Emeritus, very proud of that. You know, sort of, I'm still relatively young, but um, I'm a retired professor. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that's a, a, a hard title to get. Um, so, uh, so, but now you're, um, who, who is with you on this journey at, at Shoti? Because, you know, you mentioned, I mean, the language barrier, culture barrier. I mean, but you spent, you split time between the U.S. and China. How's this thing work? Yeah. So we have, you know, to me, starting companies, one of the biggest things is trust. You really have to, and, and if you're doing something that is in two different geographies, you really have to trust each other. Um, while I was in Shanghai, I developed a really good network of people that, you know, almost interestingly, most of them were GSK trained. In, in the United States, they were GSK trained, or most of them went to UPenn and then went to GSK and then Shanghai. So that um, building that network of friends and that trust was really, really important. Uh, I do split my time between the two places. I, I love being in both locations. The, and then there are other people on the journey, you know, one of the first hires. So we started the company with Mike Hansen, my former student, and June Yoon, who is actually an undergraduate of mine at UC Berkeley. And we've just stayed connected over the years. So we were the initial founding team. And then Shi Chen Lin, who is from GSK, we brought him in as the chief scientific officer. Just amazing. The next step was, you know, clinic. So we brought in Mark Bach, who used to lead global um, clinical for J and J. And I met him at one of the J Labs events in Shanghai, and he really liked the mission. And then we brought in, you know, Melita Sunjung for business, and uh, another person, Ding Ding, from the finance world. Um, from Hong Kong. So again, a, very much a global team, uh, very experienced. Uh, we, you know, again, strong trust. And, you know, we, we continue the journey. How much of the language do you speak? Oh, people that know me say that my, my Chinese is absolutely horrible. Um, and, it, and it is. I can, I can speak enough on the street. I have no problem uh, you know, if I get in a, whether it's a cab or I'm in the store, I, my, my Chinese has gotten better. I'll tell you a sort of quick story. I started taking Chinese lessons. My wife and I took Chinese lessons together. As soon as we got to China, we're like, all right, we need to learn at least some minimum. 
And after six months, the teacher, we took class together, the two of us and the teacher. And after six months, the teacher said, I need to split the two of you up because one of you is getting really good and the other one is getting actually worse. Um, <laughs> I was the one you can imagine was getting worse. Um, so language is not my skill set. I try. I still take classes when I go back. I still have my, my same old teacher. I'm not giving up because I believe learning a new language is, is important. I hear, you know, you read these things about it's good for your brain to get exercised that way. So I, I keep trying. I guess this does speak to that trust point you, you raised because, you know, I imagine some CEOs listening to this might think, wow, you're CEO of a company and you don't necessarily understand what everybody in your company is saying. Or <laughs> I know I know enough. And actually, I'll say I know enough to be dangerous because I can follow things. A lot, a lot of the discussions um, without without too much trouble. So I, I know enough of the language in that regard. But to your point, trust is important. Uh, it's no matter what, no matter where the company is at, you really need to sort of trust each other. And I feel a really strong bond, you know, with with our whole team in that regard. Now you mentioned the uh, the positives of having this, um, you know, bilateral sort of structure uh, with the people that you can uh, work with there and here. Uh, but you know, I can imagine there's there's a lot of downsides too, uh, or difficulties. Uh, you know, we've heard about the you know the CFIUS investment reviews. I don't know if that makes things a little more difficult with fundraising, uh, visa restrictions, et cetera, quarantines. What what's it like to um, to try to operate a truly uh, kind of bilateral company? Yeah. So you know, Luke, one of the you know, it, the fact is there are two different cultures. You know, we have a certain culture in the United States, and China, you know, also has a different culture. And then we have a third. We have our company culture. So we spend a lot of time focused on company culture. Um, I'm still learning things, you know, about, um, and it, it can take one a lifetime to really learn a lot of things about another culture. I'll give you a quick sort of snap, quick example. Um, I love the old adage, failure is not an option. I think it's the Apollo 13 mission. You know, there's a book and a movie written about it. I've lived my life with those words, I cannot fail. Once I commit to something, I am, GPCRs, I failed for 19 years. That's a long time to fail, and but I won't give up. So those that know me, and climbing a mountain, and you know this, it's one step, and you're like, oh God, I can't do another one. But then you figure it out, all right, take another step and another step. Climbing a mountain is identical to starting a biotech company. So you know you just have to keep taking that one step, one step. But in China, failure is not an option. You know my my colleague, you know Shi Chen Lin, he said, Ray. That saying makes no sense. Um, it makes a lot of sense to me. What do you mean? It's failure is not an option. We cannot fail. He goes, of course we can't fail. Why would we say that? Um, and so it was just so obvious that it wouldn't be a good rally cry uh, for us. So there's, there's certain cultural differences that we continue to learn. You know, there's other things that people worry about. Intellectual property is something that whenever I talk to people about China, they're like, intellectual property. You're completely right. You know, and others are. Ten years ago, twelve years ago, IP, it was it was horrible, no question. Uh, but I really, I I personally believe that as China has been generating more and more intellectual property, they're motivated to have more protective measures in place to make sure everybody's following the rules. And so I think that intellectual property is taken much more seriously now today than it was 
10 years ago, but people keep bringing that up. So those are things that we worry about. In terms of investors, again, you're absolutely right. Some investors, when they see that, you know, again, we're careful to say we're a global company because that's who we are. But having a footprint in China, some see it as, nah, don't want don't to risk that. Others look at it and they say, you know, the world is a big place. And if we're really looking for making a difference in the world, then we need to make these investments. And so we wind up, you know, selecting for certain types of investors. And I'm very, you know, very proud of the fact we have all top tier, you know, Fidelity, Sequoia, Hill House, um, Janus, Cormorant, Kasdan, you know, top TCG, BVF, all top tier investors. They, they see the world as the investment sort of path. They don't see one, one city, one state, one country. Well, that intellectual property piece you mentioned, I, I can imagine that, um, you know, any one person who knows one aspect of the platform could walk out the door and take it to another company. That, that's been true and still true. But I would imagine, like, it, with the way you're set up with multiple pieces of the puzzle, uh, it, it won't really work unless it's configured right. Uh, with the cryo EM, with the AI, with the uh, the automated uh, steps that you mentioned earlier, uh, is that is that how you think about it as well? You know, the, the way that I think about it is this way: um, whoever moves the fastest, you know, best product, best price gets there first. And so, to me, it's largely about speed. You need to be fast. You need to be efficient, and and that's how you win the race. And so. If you worry about and put so many different protective measures that you're slowing yourself down or, or not even taking in, you know, making the most of opportunities, then you're likely to sort of lose. So, you know, our, our attitude is we just have to be fast, committed, focused, high quality science. That'll get us there. And, you know, absolutely. Do we protect our IP in, in all the geographies? Absolutely. But getting there fast and efficient is really important. That's actually something very similar to what um, Stefan Bonsell once told me about the early days of Moderna is that, yes, they had a whole lot of intellectual property around mRNA, but uh, the most important thing was this culture of high-speed learning, that we're constantly getting better, constantly pushing the edges, and you know, other people will presumably come along and you know, make knockoff mRNA vaccines. They know that, but you know, they need to keep moving. Yeah, I was just, you know, I was, I was just going to sort of add to that. You know, one of the one of the reasons why, you know, in Shanghai, if we need twenty chemists Friday, it's easy. If we don't need them two weeks later because we've tested a hypothesis and made it, easy. Um, we can turn the spigot on and off. So it's very capital efficient in in that regard. And if you're in the same city and you can look across the table at the people doing the work, that also makes a huge difference. Okay, so uh, just a few minutes left here, Ray. What, what are you actually working on here with the, this company? What do, you, what do you hope to discover and develop? Yeah, so, the, so our first program went into the clinic last May. That was the one that I was literally in my tent at Everest Base Camp. And it's funny you say the tent's flapping. We were, it was a big snowstorm, and I was stuck in my tent uh, trying to get the— I was carrying a sort of satellite booster um, to get a signal— uh, so that molecule, we've just finished phase one. That's for um, uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension, um, PAH. Pul so we're focused on chronic disease, uh, pulmonary, cardiovascular, metabolic. Our second molecule, we're about to dose for type 2 diabetes and obesity, and very excited about that. 
And again, this is all in each of these, there's biologics out there and the biologics have validated the target, but these medicines just are only available to a small subset of the world. So um, those, those first two, so we're two molecules in the clinic right now. And the third one later this year, probably early next year, we'll have the third one. So, you know, a typical, you know, we've, we've learned a lot of lessons, you know, over the past 25 years of building biotech companies, each time we try to do it better and better. Um, I think we've been quite efficient in that regard. Uh, but what I'm most, most excited about right now is, you know, we're now in the clinic or a clinical company, getting this to the patients, really seeing the response. It's both, you know, I'm nervous, but also incredibly excited uh, that we're, we're finally getting these medicines to patients that, you know, that can help them. And at the end of the day, the way that I want to measure Shoti's success is I know my investors want, you know, market cap and value, but my measure of success for Shoti, number of patients that we treat, that's going to be our metric for success. FDA approved medicines that reach a lot of people. You mentioned they're biologically validated targets by, you know, by biologic medicines. And these are going to be orally available, small molecules, uh, presumably uh, available at a a lower price? Is that part of your thinking as well? Yeah. And, and this is where different geographies, you know, come into play. And, you know, one of the questions, we are going after chronic disease. You know, my, my investor friends, my CEO friends all tell me, Ray, you know, it's great that you want to take these things, you know, as far as you can. Um, well, you know, and, that, and we're committed, just like Receptos, we were committed all the way to market. We would love to be able to do that. We may need to partner, but the piece that I want to be um, sort of careful about is I want to make sure that we maintain some rights for rest of world because I want to make sure these medicines become available to, you know, all countries, uh, not just those that can afford them based on pricing. Maybe that um, does come home for you and, and for me. People have been to places like Nepal or Tanzania. You know, when you see people in these places and realize what kind of medicines are available uh, or, and could be, available. It's a big, a big need. Absolutely. We're, it's, it's worth our time to work on these things. Absolutely. Ray Stevens, thank you so much for joining me today on The Long Run. Thank you, Luke. A pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.